Venezuela podcast, the only English language podcast focused on all things Venezuela. Each episode, your host, Rafael, provides the latest updates on one of the greatest ongoing humanitarian crises in the world, with guest features from journalists, subject matter experts, and activists to give you insight into what's really happening in Venezuela. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at State of Venezuela. And now, your host. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host, Rafael. Glad to be with you all again, as always. So once again, we're delving into the foreign interference issue in Venezuela. In previous episodes, we looked at Iran, Hezbollah, and most recently, China. In this episode, we're going to address the one country that stands out as by far the greatest culprit in holding Venezuelan democracy hostage. That country, ladies and gentlemen, is Cuba. In 2005, Venezuela had two presidents, Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro. Several years earlier, Chavez brought in the Cubans after a failed coup attempt to remove them from power. And the role of the Cubans was to protect Chavez and his regime from any future opposition. And to that end, nearly 20 years later, they have succeeded. Today, Venezuela, by all accounts, is a colony of Cuba. Tens of thousands of military, police, civilian advisors, and experts have been deployed by Cuba's totalitarian regime into Venezuela and have completely transformed Venezuela's intelligence and armed services to replicate the model of the Cuban Revolution. In return, Cuba receives crude exports from Venezuela that are so heavily subsidized that it's practically free. Even now, as Venezuelans are starving and the country is facing a severe gasoline shortage, this is hands down one of the most important topics that I'll be talking about on this podcast. So to help me break it all down, we're joined in today's episode by Professor John Polga Hesimovich, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the U.S. Naval Academy and an Associate Researcher at the Latin American Faculty of Social Sciences in Ecuador. He's conducted academic research on Venezuela, Brazil, Ecuador, Colombia, focusing his research on the effects of political institutions on democratic stability, policymaking, and governments. You know better than most the symbiotic relationship between Cuba and Venezuela and have even written on it. So having you on today is going to help our audience learn a lot. So thanks so much for joining us today, John. Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Thank you, Rafael, for the invitation to appear today. I hope I won't disappoint your listeners with what I have to say. No, no, absolutely not. I'm confident of that. Oh, and I forgot to mention that um, you were tapped to join recently the Venezuela Working Group at the Atlantic Council. So first and foremost, congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, I'm with an excellent group of people, uh, Venezuelan, European, and uh, American scholars, uh, practitioners, and and policy analysts. And uh, it's it's really a an intellectually... Uh, experienced and and strong group. Yeah. um, For those in in the audience who want to learn more, definitely look up. uh, It's um, organized by the Atlantic Council. And on there, there are some other familiar faces that I've interviewed before um, and that follow our account and that I know personally, like Joseph Umire, Paul Angelo, Colette Capriles, um, who else? Jose Ignacio Hernandez, Francisco Monaldi, 
So if you're all listening, congratulations to you all as well. So um, let's get started here, John, because quite frankly, there is so much material to cover with respect to the Cuba-Venezuelan relationship. So what I decided to do uh, for the audience to, to understand how we're going to move forward with today's episode, we're going to be breaking down our discussion and discuss each phase of the Cuba-Venezuela relationship chronologically. And I want to start by quoting a former commander of one of the main forces of the Farabundo Marti Front of El Salvador who argued in El País, the newspaper, why exactly Venezuela is considered to be a Cuban colony. And I want to get your take on this, John, because this is fundamentally the premise that I want to argue in today's episode. He argues, colonialism basically consists of political, military, and cultural control, a puppet government, and an extractive economy. By manipulating Hugo Chavez, Fidel Castro managed to conquer Venezuela. He defined its government model, aligned the country ideologically with socialism of the 21st century, reorganized, trained, and defined the doctrine of its armed forces, assumed control of its intelligence and security agencies, sent hundreds of thousands of soldiers, teachers, and doctors to consolidate its political dominance, and established the Bolivarian Alliance of the Peoples of America, or ALBA. For the geopolitical defense of his colony, he chose Nicolas Maduro as the puppet successor to Hugo Chavez and established an extractive economy that allowed him to obtain up to 100,000 barrels of oil a day to sustain his own regime. It's <laughs> a lot of words, but does that seem like it's uh, that as succinct as it is? Does, does that sound like it's pretty accurate? It's it's pretty accurate. The the ties that drew. Uh, Cuba and Venezuela together are, are all there, right? And the myriad ways in which uh, the political leaders drew up agreements and in Chavez's case, determined that his future was in part going to be linked to the future of, of, of Cuba and vice versa. Uh, however, I, I should begin by saying, even though I agree that factually a lot of that is true, I'd like to push back on, on that person's characterization because it seems to take away agency from the Venezuelan government, from Hugo Chavez and from Nicolás Maduro. Uh, and it suggests this is entirely a, a scheme of Fidel Castro and the, and the Cuban government. And I don't think that that is the case. I think that Cuba has its interests and had interests that it pursued. Uh, but I also think that Venezuela had interests and that the sets of goals and objectives from the two countries dovetailed quite nicely. Uh, and so we can't take away from from Hugo Chavez's pursuit of Cuba as well. Right. I think that's an important caveat to highlight as well. And I think that also provides a, a good segue for us to start specifically with how this relationship came about, because I just I cannot think of another relationship that is so how would I put this? That is just so rife with entanglements. I'm wondering if you might be able to place us to when Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro first met. What sure. was, what were the events that led to those two meeting and how they were able to forge the sort of relationship that eventually evolved into the relationship between Cuba and Venezuela that we understand today? Sure, I think that it's important to to distinguish between the personal and ideological ties between those two leaders, right? The friendship that developed between those two leaders, and then the 
kind of commercial diplomatic uh, and technological ties between the two countries, uh, which were, I think, much more uh, transactional. So it begins with that first dimension, with just a, a personal relationship. Chavez had admired Castro as a, a military cadet, and after forming the the Movimiento Bolivariano Revolucionario 200 in 1982 in Venezuela, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, Chavez carried out a coup attempt on February 4th, 1992, against the democratically elected government of Carlos Andres Perez. He was stopped and imprisoned, but he was released from prison in 1994. And so following his release, he traveled to Cuba and gave a a speech at the University of, of Havana in which he called Cuba the, quote, stronghold of Latin American dignity and then met Castro, right? So that personal relationship carried on and blossomed, so much so that Castro attended Chavez's inauguration in 1999 after winning the the presidential election, right? And it was only later in 1999 and in early 2000 that the two countries or the two governments began to establish economic ties, political ties, and security slash military ties. And so, you know, there's this kind of personal dimension. There's an ideological and and, and personal dimension to this that precedes the the economic, political, and and security ones. Maybe that's a good place to to start to talk about uh, what happens in the year 2000, right? So it's not just about the ideological affinity of these these two leftists, right? About one leftist for Castro seeking out another leftist in the region, especially during the the so-called special period right after the fall of uh, communism in the fall of the Soviet Union. Cuba was looking for allies, and Venezuela, under Chavez, came to the rescue, right? And for Venezuela, because Chavez admired Castro, this this made a lot of sense. So Cuba was able to, to seek to replace these economic subsidies that had been provided before by Moscow, and Venezuela was flush with cash because of kind of record high oil prices. So um, all of this comes to a head in, in kind of 2000, when the two countries signed something called the Comprehensive Cooperation Agreement. And basically, th- this agreement, the framework of this agreement, established that Venezuela would sell up to, at the time, 53,000 barrels of oil per day to Cuba at a fixed reduced price through its state-owned oil company called Petróleos de Venezuela, or PDVSA. Cuba, in turn, would, uh, would provide Venezuela with medical services, medical specialists, and health technicians to especially marginalized neighborhoods in and around Caracas and major cities in, in Venezuela, right? It also provided Venezuelans with the ability to send patients and their relatives to Cuba for specialized medical treatment, um, But really what this did was create a first kind of binding agreement between the two countries. Yeah, you covered a lot there. So thank you so much for that. And you're absolutely right. There was there's a there's a friendship dynamic there. And there's another dynamic that transcends the ideological affinity of both of their leaders. Right. That's right. Um, I think it's really, really important as well that we highlight that throughout that special period. 
Cuba was in need of a replacement, another shoulder to lean on, if you will. And uh, you put it perfectly. Chavez came to the rescue. I have, I have a Rafael. I have a, I have a cruder analogy rather than a shoulder to to lean on. And my crude version is a teat to suckle on. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And it can go much, much more vulgar than that. Unfortunately, I've I've heard them all, and th- this gets a lot worse. Let's put it that way. Um, right. And, and I kind of want to g- shift to that before we talk about where Chavez starts to bring Cuba more into the actual administrative state. I want to go back to the the medical missions that you had mentioned earlier. Could you tell the audience a little bit about these missions? I think it was called uh, Barrio Adentro was probably the biggest one, right? Where you had Cuban doctors going into yeah. Venezuela. So even before Mission Barrio Adentro, the into the neighborhood mission, I guess would be the <laughs> the, the English translation of that. There was an exchange of uh, medical personnel, and what that allowed was the the mayor of Libertador Municipality, which is outside of Caracas. The the mayor Freddy Bernal in two thousand and three began discussions to bring Cuban physicians directly to poor neighborhoods in that municipality, and he called it Plan Barrio Adentro, basically bringing the state right to marginalized places where the state hadn't previously existed. And these were part, this is part of a, a, ended up becoming something that was so successful that it was adopted by the national government in uh, 2004, right? And Barrio Adentro ultimately, I think, at its peak might have included as many as 23,000, 24,000 Cuban doctors, dental specialists, optometrists, nurses, and etc. Uh, and distributed those people out to something like 6,500 sites throughout the country, right? Basically trying to provide uh, healthcare to some, you know, or healthcare services to, to something like 15 million Venezuelans. I don't think they actually did, but that was one of the, the stated goals. And this was part of a larger initiative by the, the Chavez government, policy proposals called social missions, called misiones sociales, to bring state services to the poor. And, and Barrio Adentro was just the first or one of the first of many of, of these types of social missions in which Cubans often participated. I jumped the gun there a little bit because I think this was part of the Cuba-Venezuela agreement that was signed back in 2004. But That's- it's important that we also highlight just chronologically where we're at because I think we skipped over the coup attempt. That coup attempt in 2002, where Chavez narrowly escaped being forcefully put out from uh, his position of power, you write in your report on Venezuela that Chavez had become more radicalized and distrustful of those around him, especially and understandably the political opposition and the opposition aligned PDVSA and military leadership. So, to what extent would you say that contributed to? Chavez choosing to become more dependent or trustworthy of Castro in the Cuban government? That's a great question. It's obviously impossible to answer because it's a counterfactual question, um, but, but I'll do my best. I think that it might be something similar to the failed Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, which pushed Cuba towards the Soviet Union. Cuba was already leaning that way, right? But the Bay of Pigs marked a definitive kind of inflection point. 
And I think that we see the same thing in, in Venezuela with the April 2002 coup, where Chavez was already friendly with Cuba and already had signed an agreement with Cuba, had already, after the 1999 mudslides, uh, after the heavy rains in, in the state of Vargas, which is now La Guaira, had turned back uh, U.S. offers of medical and infrastructure support, right? And so it, it's not like the U.S. and Venezuela were on really friendly terms anyway. But uh, the coup and the supposed uh, support of the United States for this coup attempt, which I is is disputed, uh, at least on the official record, this certainly pushed Chavez towards people he thought he could trust, right? Which were loyalists within Venezuela and people outside of Venezuela who uh, were experienced in this and who was more experienced in attempts at his uh, life or at his power. Uh, in the hemisphere than, than Fidel Castro, right? So um, I, I think certainly this was, was a turning point that drove Chavez into Castro's arms, if he wasn't already there. Right. And he was definitely there even throughout the ordeal, right? Because even in the report, I couldn't help but notice that you had written that Castro actually advised Chavez throughout the entire thing and yes. told him, hey, don't resign and instead demand conditions for surrender. And commit to sending a, um, or Castro had committed to sending a delegation to support Chavez. So Castro, from what I understand, was sort of a determining factor of how to actually get out of that particular situation. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think that both countries learned from this. And you, what, what you're going to see moving forward after this moment is an increase in kind of security assistance, right, which is kind of code for military and intelligence assistance from, from Cuba to Venezuela. And Chavez saw this as necessary to maintain a loyal inner circle. And Maduro has certainly seen it. Maduro is someone who's had to purchase the loyalty of those around him. And he has, has certainly doubled down on this. Yes, even though Maduro has had to shell out from his pockets or I guess uh, plunder the the coffers of, uh, of Venezuela's economy to keep the the general's pockets lined up and sort of at his beck and call the army has done a, uh, a really good job of fomenting suppression and it's specifically because of Cuba's early support extending beyond the social missions talk to us if you could about this collaboration between Venezuela's uh, FANBE, which is, of course is the revolutionary um, or the Bolivarian Revolutionary Armed Forces is, I think, the former title, <laughs> yeah. and the uh, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Cuba that gradually intensified throughout the 2000s. Yeah. Um, so first of all, you're absolutely right with the nomenclature. It gets kind of confusing. The, the name of the Venezuelan military was a Fuerza Armada Nacional or National Armed Force until 2008. And after that time, Chavez, like he did with so many things, renaming the country and adding a, a star to the flag and all these sort of changes to the insignia of the country, he, he changed the name uh, of the military to the Bolivarian uh, National Armed Force, right? The Fan Bay, F-A-N-B. In doing this, um, he maintained, first of all, a central role for Cubans in social missions, as well as his own uh, armed forces, okay? And Cuban military officials and civilians during this time, during the mid-2000s, 2008, late 2000s, reported in some cases directly to Chavez or directly to the Minister of Defense who changed. Um, 
often kind of playing the role of, of supervisor, but within the military also serving as, um, as intelligence to gauge the, the loyalty of, of senior officers, senior Venezuelan officers. Um, and so what you had was kind of a, an, this was not, never official, right? But an unofficial bleeding over of, of the lines between Cuban support for social missions and Cuban support for Venezuelan institutions in general, right? Especially military institutions. Because there were Cubans that, you know, slept in military uh, installations in, in Venezuelan army barracks, right? They, they used military transportation. They were given food and lodging from the government and all sorts of other goodies. So this is very hard to pin down, but it also appears, you know, the, the numbers are hard to pin down, but it appears that whatever their numbers, which is probably in the thousands, that the role was very important to Chavez. And I think it, it became official in 2008 specifically that uh, that bilateral cooperation between uh, the two military branches, I think uh, you'd written it in, about it in your report as well, that there were documents that were reviewed by Reuters and they put out this report in 2019. I'm definitely going to be uh, linking an article to this report from Reuters because it's really, really well done. It's very rich with information. And effectively, it allowed Cuba's armed forces to train soldiers in Venezuela to review and restructure parts of the Venezuelan military, to yeah. train Venezuelan intelligence agents in Havana and to change the intelligence services mission effectively from spying on foreign rivals to just going gung-ho and surveilling the entire country's own soldiers, officers, and even their own senior commanders. And that, that that's absolutely right. And it also speaks to what happens in Venezuelan politics during this time, which is the kind of the gradual, not just the erosion of democracy in the 2000s, but the creep of authoritarianism, right? And the idea that in, in boom times, Chavez could have free and, well, could have elections that were more or less free and fair because so much of the population really did support him. Uh, but as things, you know, as oil prices fell and things grew worse and Maduro came to power and experienced economic crisis, uh, Chavismo would lose in free and fair elections. They would lose the way they lost in 2015 and 2015 National Assembly elections. And so it's during this time that, that the state authoritarianizes, autocratizes. And as part of that autocratization, there is a, let's say, a sowing of Cuban intelligence officers within the military and within the state security apparatus as an attempt to coup-proof, right? To coup-proof the government, to make sure that uh, disloyal officers wouldn't overthrow Chavez uh, and overthrow Maduro subsequently. In everything that you've studied from this particular time period, just out of curiosity, John, is there anything from your research that seemed particularly startling to you? Something that just stood out and you said, wow, I had no idea that this ran that deep? Well, um, unfortunately, because I've I've been around Venezuela so, so much, uh, there are few things at this point that, that would surprise me, I think, uh, to hear. Um, however, the idea of plainclothes Cubans reporting directly to the president of the country, 
uh, or directly to, to the Minister of Defense did startle me. Right? The, the idea that Cuban nationals would be ones helping to design and carry out policy uh, was, was a bit shocking. And I, w- I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier that you said that it's not shocking to you because you've been around this issue for so long. Most of, of these the- things aren't. Yeah, most of these things are. But that certainly is. Sure, sure. Absolutely. And uh, most Venezuelans absolutely would agree with you on that. Um, before before we started the interview, I said that Venezuelans have become so cynical with this topic that once you mention this to them, they'll say, yeah, with water is wet. Is, is it a day that ends in why? Because they've, they've right. heard all these things before. But to the outside world, these facts that we're talking about, these are startling revelations. And I think uh, to the credit of Cuba's counterintelligence, they've done a really good job of um, ensuring that none of this really seeps into the outside world. And that's something that I wanted to ask you about, John. There's a lot of talk of manipulation of information that's disseminated into uh, into social media through organizations like the G2. I hear that I hear that acronym a lot. The G2, the G2, El Hedos Cubano is everywhere. Um, could you explain more elaborately what we understand as the Hedos Cubano? What exactly is that entity that is working so diligently in maintaining this very sophisticated informa- disinformation apparatus? Sure, the 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 Hedos uh, is kind of its common name, and that's the, the Dirección de Inteligencia, the, the Intelligence uh, Directorate, uh, which is kind of the main state intelligence agency in Cuba, right? This is, let's call it the, I don't know if we should call it the NSA or the, or the CIA, but but it's Cuba's Intelligence Directorate. It's, you know, as old basically as, as Castrismo, I believe. It might be from 1960 or so, 1961. And it is part of the Ministry of Interior, which is a far less mundane ministry than its name would imply, right? It has something like 15,000 employees. Uh, if we are to take the information, that the public information, uh, which is quite large for a, a, an island that's, that's very small. And so this intelligence directorate has been, uh, you know, had a, had a relationship with the KGB, uh, subsequently has been involved in, well, in all sorts of different countries, in Chile, in Nicaragua, uh, and, and places like this. It hosted, I believe, Carlos the, the Jackal, the uh, Venezuelan terrorist who is imprisoned in France, I believe, right now. So, you know, this is, this is an intelligence organization that, like many intelligence organizations, has ties to some unsavory uh, characters and is engaged in some unsavory action. Right. While I understand that a lot of this is to ensure that there's no, or as you put it, right, coup proofing it, to ensure that there's no fomentation of suppression. And to that end, um, I've read multiple instances of different attempts from different soldiers trying to defect or to mount insurrections, and uh, they get caught. They get caught and they get put into either, um, well, there, there's one specific place where I think most of them are put into, right? Which is called the, um, my goodness, it's in the, in the very center of Caracas. It's this large dome. It's called the the helicoide. The, the helicoid, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know actually if that's the way it's pronounced in English, heli- what I just said, but but Yes. Yeah. So for uh, for the audience, could you explain maybe what is the helicoide and why 
uh, for some Venezuelans, it really just um, sends shiver down their spines. Yeah, that's it's a building, like you say, in the, in the middle of Caracas, that's basically a, a prison. But it's it's more of a prison for political prisoners than, than anything else. And it's political prisoners of the the Bolivarian Intelligence Service, which is to say the Venezuelan Intelligence Service, which is called the SEBIN, S-E-B-I-N. Um, it's an odd-looking building. It's essentially like a pyramid, like a three-sided pyramid. was constructed as a shopping mall, but never completed. And it's a place where there is kind of systematic violations of human rights, right? Where there's torture of political prisoners um, for very high-level de- detainees. Right. There are reports of prisoners being electrocuted and beaten and things of that nature. And in some cases, uh, deaths right linked to the, the helicoid. So, um, yeah, that's not a place that that you want to go. Not only that, but there have there have actually been witnesses that um, have testified or whose testimony has been compiled into different cases where effectively these witnesses tell these NGOs from Venezuela that Cubans with Cuban accents are the ones that were actually participating in the torture. And like you said, the common methods that they described were beatings, chaining up prisoners and near strangling them. And they would use tear gas and like you said, electric shocks in order to interrogate these people. So it's, it's awful. But the fact of the matter is, um, Cubans are involved in all of this. Cuban agents were the ones that were giving orders to generals and coordinate activities at these torture centers in Venezuela. It, it, yeah, it bears mentioning that, you know, you might ask, how, how do you know that they're Cuban? Or how do these people know that they're Cubans? And a lot of that comes from the language, right, from their accents. So people are kind of putting two and together, hearing, hearing an accent that is not a Venezuelan accent and, and understanding that that is a you know, most likely a Cuban accent. So, uh, right. They're not, the Cubans aren't showing up and saying, ah, I come from, I come from La Habana and I'm here to torture you. No, you know, there, there is some, there are some inferences that that, that people are making to, uh, to, to call them Cuban. Right. We can definitely pick up on the accents. No disrespect to my Cuban listeners. You guys know our accents, Cuban accents, they, they stand out. Anytime that I go anywhere, people immediately pick up on the fact that I'm Venezuelan because our accents really do stick out. But yeah, in this instance, that's how they were able to pick it up. And it's uh, it's something that I hope it's gaining steam in the International Criminal Court. It's something that has already been picked up by the United Nations uh, Human Rights Council in the memo that was released, or the report rather, that was released last year that basically implicated the regime for being guilty of committing crimes against humanity. Uh, But that's something that we'll get to later. I want to get back to this relationship or the development of this relationship in the 2000s, because it seems like as of now, Venezuela is the one that's reaping all of the benefits, right? But we haven't really touched yet on the other side of this transactional relationship. How exactly is Venezuela paying for all of this? With oil, with oil. This made a lot of sense. Uh, for for Venezuela, when uh, when oil prices were high and it was flush with with oil, when it was you know producing three million barrels a day or or you know thereabouts uh, or even above two million barrels a day, but uh, for a number of reasons, including uh, the 
the mass firing of PDVSA employees after a general strike um, in the early 2000s led to the replacement of those employees, tens of thousands, you know, 15,000 employees, something like that, uh, of highly trained professionals with kind of political loyalists. That hurts uh, efficiency in production. The lack of investment in infrastructure hurt production. Lack of ability to uh, all sorts of things kind of hurt Venezuelan production. Plus, there was a fall in oil prices, and so ultimately, you know, today for a variety of reasons, including also um, economic sanctions, have hurt Venezuelan oil production. Nonetheless, during this whole time, Venezuela. Uh, has and continues to uh, export crude at reduced prices to Cuba. And when I say reduced prices, I mean prices where, where you know, Venezuela loses money, right, with exporting its, its oil. So um, this is how it's paying for all of this Cuban support. And uh, funny you mentioned that. I don't know if you were able to pick this up, John, but just yesterday, as of recording, of course, while Venezuelans right now are suffering from a gasoline shortage because, as I always say on this podcast, we are sitting on the world's largest amount of proven oil reserves, yet we cannot refine that oil and we were ha- we are having to export it or import it, I should say. We are having to have it imported from other countries. In spite of all of that, while Venezuelans are suffering and in long lines, of the most recent fuel delivery that arrived in Venezuela, we're talking about almost 160,000 barrels. 30% of that, one third, went to Cuba. That's right. So it's ultimately, I understand that there's an extent to which the sanctions do bite, we can say, but it's not the sanctions that are diverting those thousands of barrels of much needed fuel. This this goes back to the analogy we were talking about earlier, right? The suckling of the teat proverbially. That's right. Yeah, this is the first diesel that, that arrived to, to Venezuela in the past six months, since last November. Uh, I, think it, I think it arrived two weeks ago uh, aboard a tanker that had set sail from the UAE, although you know, it's anyone's guess as to what the real origin of that, <laughs> of that diesel is. And as you know, at least Russ Dolan at, at Caracas Capital pointed out yesterday, Venezuela shipped about a third of this diesel, but a third of the 500,000 uh, barrels to Cuba. So um, pr- pretty remarkable. And again, yes, I agree. It's not it's not sanctions that is t- telling Venezuela to send it to Cuba. But what is the trade-off for, for Venezuela, right? What's the trade-off? The trade-off is the people suffer, but the government does this because it's receiving something in return from Cuba. Right. They're, they're getting all sorts of um, the doctors, the nurses, the, the personnel and the services is what uh, what they call it. But then they also have those members of the CDR, right? The, the committees for the defense of the revolution. So those are effectively spies, right? Yeah. I think maybe not spy in the conventional sense as much as kind of offering kind of intelligence support and, and guidance. But, but yes. While we're on the subject of the missions in Venezuela and the infiltration of the Cubans inside of some of these medical missions, which is something that we haven't really talked about all that much. But unfortunately, there have been stories. I don't know if you if you read this one. This was from the New York Times. And it was talking about how a lot of these medical practices, and I don't know if this stems necessarily from Cuba, but medical practices in Venezuela are politicized. So 
this goes all the way back to 2003, where you basically had some of these mm -hmm. Cuban doctors conducting door-to-door -door visits, carrying vitamins and all these other medical supplies, and then instructing the patients on how to vote. There was one doctor who even said that he couldn't help a 65-year-old patient who needed oxygen because his Cuban and Venezuelan superiors told him that he had to leave the oxygen tank untouched until just before the 2018 presidential election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm not familiar. I don't know that article specifically, uh, but that doesn't sound strange. You know, my in-laws uh, are in Venezuela and they live in a, a neighborhood that I think would be classified as as uh, part of the political opposition. And <laughs> Cuban uh, medical personnel are regularly appear during uh, the COVID lockdown and have, for example, tried to give out COVID, free COVID tests and everyone's refused. Uh, because again, because they're all Cuban and they, and they don't trust them. Uh, so things like this uh, don't surprise me much, especially in a country where you know the, the government has politicized the pol the public administration since you know at least two thousand two. One thing I wanted to ask here is while there's been this sort of brain trust formulated of revolutionary ideology inside the military. My question is, and I really haven't asked a whole lot of people this, but just out of curiosity, are you familiar with any sort of pushback that occurred during the these uh, formulative years, the uh, you know, up until the early 2010s, while they were training these soldiers in Venezuela, training Venezuelan intelligence agents in order to basically psychologically condition them? I mean, were they, did they have to be sort of broken into believing this sort of stuff? Because essentially I, they, they have to know in the back of their heads that, yeah, in the beginning of the episode, you had mentioned that there is that autonomy that exists, but I can't imagine that the soldiers don't see what's going on and don't think in the back of their heads, you know, what am I doing? This, this is, this is all wrong. This is so wrong. I think that you see that in the turnover of of officers, right? And I'm not sure that simply by remaining a part of the military, these people are are buying what's being sold. They're towing the company line because they want to protect their own livelihoods or their own careers, right? And they're willing to <laughs> to kind of look the other way in order to do that. Uh, you know, Chavez uh, undertook a number of again coup proofing measures within the military, including the rotation, frequent rotation of officers, something that Maduro has continued, uh, frequent purges of officers that he deemed uh, insufficiently loyal to his political project, and other things. And so bearing this in mind, it became very costly for groups of officers to publicly oppose any of the government's measures, including being led by uh, Cubans. Individually, however, I think that it was quite different. I've spoken to ex-officers who were retired officers who certainly say that they chafed at the presence of Cubans. They were displeased by the presence of Cubans and displeased with the direction of the armed forces. But they had little recourse. And the citizens, of course, have very little recourse as well, having to live under the fear of not just organizations like the G2 intelligence unit or the HEDOS as it's known, um, but also, like you mentioned earlier, the Bolivarian National Intelligence Service, the Sabine. That was actually replaced in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, right? Or it replaced, rather, the 
Sectoral Directorate of Intelligence and Prevention Services, the DCEP. So that DCEP, from what I gather, was, um, how would I put this? I don't want to say nonpartisan because we understand nonpartisan in, in a, under a different context here in the United States. It was, but, it was bureaucratically neutral, right? That's what right, we thank in, you. in political science terms. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, bureaucratically neutral. That no longer seems to be the case. Now Sabine seems to be this sort of modern day Stasi that carries out all sorts of arbitrary arrests and crackdowns on dissidents suspected of, I don't know, X, Y, Z. I don't know if that's within the military. It seems like that's more Dehesim, but I, I don't know. I could be wrong. What, what would you say is the main difference between the Sabine and the Dehesim, John? Um, the The Sabine carries out, like you say, you know, it's it's essentially acting as a as a secret secret police, right? Um, and is formally part of the state security apparatus, but is separate from the military. And what what, what is the other uh, agency that you mentioned? I'm sorry. Uh, the Dehesim, the G, the DGCIM. Ah, okay. So that's military counterintelligence. The the um, the Directorate General of Military Counterintelligence. And basically, that is both internal and external, right? Um, really in practice, I think that it is one of internal counterintelligence. So I, I think there's a great deal of overlap between the Sabine and the DGCIM uh, in, terms of, in terms of what they do in the country. For, uh, for the audience, that's the General Directorate of Military Counterintelligence. That's the, uh, the Dehesim. But we'll get into that once we get into this uh, third part of the relationship between Cuba and Venezuela. And it really starts with the passing of Hugo Chavez, right? Because right. He, won, he won the 2012 presidential elections and was diagnosed with cancer and finally passed away on, um, I think it was March in 2013. March 2013. Yeah. So that was in October 2012. He won the presidential elections. They were regional or municipal elections in, in December of that year. Chavez at the time was in Cuba. He passed away in Cuba, not in Venezuela. He didn't even uh, go to his swearing in ceremony. He was sworn in from a hospital bed in Cuba. Uh, and so when he passed away, there was a scramble. His vice president took over Nicolas Maduro and then convened uh, another election. And that really changed things. And it changed things because even though Maduro has died in the wool um, socialist and very pro-Cuba, uh, he did not have the rapport with the Cuban government that Chavez uh, did, right? And so th the relationship between Cuba and Venezuela become, became much more transactional and less, I think, ideological in its tenor. So, you know, even at the time Chavez passed away in 2012, Castro had already stepped down in 2008 and appointed his, his brother, or was succeeded, we should say, by his brother, Raul Castro, right? So this, this changes things. The, the relationship between Raul Castro and Nicolás Maduro is quite different than the one between Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. Right. You describe it as being more quid pro quo and less of the sort of public political activism that characterized that very um, that very symbolic relationship, we can say, between Chavez and Castro. That's exactly right. And, and it became about, for Maduro, about his survival 
And frankly, for Cuba, it became about Cuba's survival. In spite of all that, the the relationship still under Maduro centered much more on that aspect of security and intelligence. Well, there, there are two units that uh, we haven't spoken about yet, the first of which is the Cooperation and Liaison Group, which maintains units in both Cuba and Venezuela, and it functions as a uh, structure to link all of uh, the different commands for territorial defense. Mm. Was that started under Maduro or was it started under Chavez? Um, oh, man. That's a that's that's the Gruse, right? The Gruse, yes. Um, when is when what I I don't know off the top of my head when when the Gruse be, began. Um, this is this is like a pop quiz. Um, hmm. I'll have to get back to you. That's okay. I'll I'll look it up later, and I'll probably put it in our in our show notes so that everybody has that answer. Um. But to that end, uh, Cuba reached really what we can call the central nerve of Venezuela's intelligence through the the other organization that we haven't talked about yet that Maduro created. I think this was in 2013, and this is the CESPA, which is the Center for the Security and Protection of the Motherland. And that, <laughs> could, we, could we say, is kind of like the equivalent of the NSA in the United States? Uh, sure. Yes, the Centro Estratégico de Seguridad y Protección de la Patria. What a name! They ha- they have to have these these names, right? Um, sure, maybe the the NSA is created by via decree in 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 2013 is uh, the equivalent of that. <laughs> to 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 your point, the the Cuba Venezuela relationship, as you pointed out earlier it only elevated from a security and intelligence standpoint. Um, I think it was Luis Almagro from the Organization of American States who reported in 2018 that there are somewhere between 20,000 to 40,000 Cuban soldiers inside of Venezuela right now. But you say that in your report, it's probably a little bit less. So what do you mean by that? Well... There's a there's a problem, which is that in order to to try and emphasize the the importance of of this, um, or rather the gravity of Cuban influence in Venezuela, a lot of observers have purposefully or not exaggerated the numbers. First of all, it's it's just very difficult. To have uh, a specific, you know, number of of Cubans in Venezuela. Second of all, um, you know, people want to inflate or deflate those numbers given different political uh, objectives. And so, you know, and, and I guess third off, people are not very clear about distinguishing between the number of Cubans in Venezuela and the number of Cubans that have an, you know, explicitly political purpose, which is to say. The difference between you know military advisors and intelligence advisors and the like, and simply the number of Cubans who may be you know nurses or something. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think the focus, the overwhelming focus on numbers, 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 numbers. And that was a big thing for the report that Brian Fonseca and I put together for for the Wilson Center. Uh, was people wanted numbers. And we talked to all sorts of people on the record and off the record, people in the know, and everyone had a different number. 
And ultimately, you know, I think the, the, the smartest people that we talked to said that the numbers don't matter, right? What matters is where these people are in Venezuela. Are they on the streets or are they in the government, right? And that's what they pointed to. So I think that the, the focus on saying there are 20,000 or 40,000 Cubans in Venezuela overlooks the fact that even if it's 400, having 400 Cubans in the Venezuelan military or government is far more consequential. I completely agree. And I think that outlining what their role is and really emphasizing the extent to which the the control of so many of our institutions, be it military, the intelligence community, political and economic to, to varying degrees, have been surrendered to these Cubans that have been deployed in Venezuela. Because um, this this hardcore group of whatever the number is, I mean... They've been just so, so influential. We've talked about the espionage. We've talked about the counter espionage. We've talked about the officers. We've talked about the soldiers, but not just them. They act as the Praetorian guard for Maduro himself. Right. He, they are his personal security ring. It's not Venezuelans. It's Cubans. Right. And, you know, if your listeners want numbers or want to debate numbers, you know, the Cuban army the Cuban military is basically some 50 to 65,000 people, right? So to say that there are like 40,000 Cuban military in Venezuela is ridiculous, right? And the Ministry of the Interior in Cuba has something like maybe 70,000 people total. So, you know, if you look at like 5%, which is a, a high percentage, but even if, you know, there are 5% of the FAR, right, the, the, the Cuban military and the Ministry of the Interior, well, that falls far below those numbers that people like like to bandy about, right? I, I think, you know, still, yes, Cuban doctors and nurses and such do advance the Cuban and Venezuelan government's political interests, but they are their role is different from what you say, the, the, the Praetorian Guard. And, of course, the, the role that they play in intelligence um... – the, the interception of messages that come from uh, one soldier to another or one political figure to another. Um, a lot of them also, we haven't really talked about this yet, but some of them are in Fort Tuna. And that's the uh, the that's the largest military brand, or excuse me, that's the largest uh, military building, institution. What would we call it? Cuartel. Uh, it's the largest barracks. It's the most important barracks in, in, in the country. Right. So having Cuban high military command there as well just shows how closely they are guarding Maduro and his closest people right. as sort of like the, the first line of defense. That's exactly right. Um, would, you, would you agree, John, in saying that as long as they're there, um, how, how should I rephrase this? Would you agree or to what extent would you agree in saying that this infiltration of Cuban intelligence, right? Because th that was their mission. Their mission was to bolster the military's loyalty, effectiveness, to maintain the Bolivarian revolution, to quash dissent and prevent military uprisings like the ones that we saw in April of 2002 and in April of 2019. So to that end, as long as they're there, would you say that that is the reason why Maduro has been able to last as long as he has in power? 
Well, I, I think it's not the reason, but it might be a reason, right? Uh, I don't think anything is monocausal, uh, but but in this case, it certainly helps that that there is foreign support and absolute loyalty purchased with Venezuelan oil, <laughs> right? Uh, or in some cases, not even Venezuelan oil, oil destined for Venezuela that is re-exported to Cuba, right? So certainly, I you know I, I I agree. Right, like the ones that we just talked about uh, that happened just yesterday, and that seems to show no signs of slowing down. Yeah. Um, a couple of other questions here, John. Moving forward, there have been a couple of recent developments that I'm sure you're aware of. Number one, uh, one of the most significant being the fact that Raúl Castro stepped down. So the reins have been handed down to Miguel Diaz Canel, who was already pretty much running the country at that point, but Again, Raul Castro was no longer serving that uh, that secretary general position for uh, the Cuban government. So right. what implications, if any, are there moving forward with respect to the Cuba-Venezuela relationship? It doesn't seem like there are many because Miguel Diaz-Canel had told Maduro when he came into power, you can count on us. We're, we're, yeah. we're still good. Yeah, I think that it's a continuation of policy. As you say... He was already doing a lot, and so there there isn't a great divergence in in Cuban policy. And I, I think really what could change the relationship is domestic politics in Cuba, right? If you look at protest movements and and the back and forth between the government, the Cuban government, and, and protesters in Cuba, that could be something that you know I don't think it's likely to that this will ever topple the regime or in the short term, this would topple the, the Cuban regime. Um, but it might change the, the calculus of the Cuban government. It could possibly change Cuba's ties to, to Venezuela. If it, if Cuba requires, you know, prefers to bring back some of its advisors from Venezuela to Cuba in order to ensure the government's own survival. Right. Yeah. The, the Patria y Vida movement was a, was a big one as well with that song that came out. It, it raised a lot of eyebrows, even here in the United States. Something small, right? But very cool to see that people, I guess, still are yearning for this sort of thing because we can get bogged down as Venezuelans, as Cubans. I always joke with uh, some of the Cuban friends that I have that we're sort of in the same boat quite literally at this point. But it seems like the main mission of this infiltration and really of the regime at large is to stamp out hope because mm. you can't have true despair without hope. And once you remove that from the equation, then people get complacent and they say, well, you know what, this is, this is my destiny. Why should I continue to fight this any longer? But seeing that at least with, with Cubans that's going on and with Venezuelans, I hope that that momentum stays as well. That's right. Yes. And what about the uh, what do you make of this changing of the guard here in the United States? You know, now we have a new administration that I know that President Biden has in the past said unequivocally that Maduro is a dictator, but has at the same time shown a willingness to take a different approach from his predecessor and to take an approach similar to his predecessor's predecessor, opening up the door to uh, Cuba. My concern, of course, given everything that we've spoken about today, is the lack of concessions that the Cuban government would give in relinquishing their their hold on Venezuela in all of this. 
of course, I'm being very biased here in saying so based on just the the information that we've spoken about today. But what do you make of this in light of a new administration, in light of Castro not really being in the picture anymore, and the situation in both Cuba and Venezuela being as dire as it is? Yeah, uh, it seems that the Biden administration is being very careful with both Cuba and Venezuela. And I think it's it's interesting to see how public these issues are right now compared to under the Trump administration, uh, where they were, they seemed to be very important, very public policies for the United States under President Trump. And they seem to be less, very le- less visible, right? Uh, under, under Biden, at least so far. Um, I believe that President Biden has, has said on a number of occasions that the kind of Cuba is off or his team has said that Cuba negotiations with Cuba is really not on, on the agenda. Um, you know, whether that, you know, holds true remains to be seen. I think, however, that negotiations and possibly a, you know, lifting of some sanctions in exchange for true concessions from Venezuela is, is more likely. Uh, and that this would be a strategy of perhaps incrementalism, of incremental reinstitutionalization in Venezuela and of a possible uh, you know, liberaliza- political liberalization of at least the electoral regime in Venezuela. But again, whether that will actually happen remains to be seen. And I think that at least, uh, you know, one of Biden's very important uh, Latin American policy advisors, Juan Gonzalez, has said, you know, we will not lift sanctions unless the Maduro government, and the Maduro regime gives true concessions. And whether he does really does remain to be seen, because I, <laughs> again, I'm very biased here, but I there's very little I would trust them with, let's put it that way. And they've shown uh, zero compunction for anything bordering any sort of integrity. I'm not sure that's bias. I, I think that's just learning from, from the past, right? Sure. And I don't know if you saw this, but actually just, again, just yesterday, there was a report that came out from, I believe it was the International Transparency Index. I could be wrong. And essentially, it just lines out. Oh, yeah, it is. It's the tra- it's Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index. Mm. Venezuela ranks 176th out of 180 countries, and of course, leads South America as the most corrupt country, probably in the entire hemisphere. But I think that's an improvement from the past. I think it might have been lower last year. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter. It's it's just as it's just as corrupt now as it was then. Exactly. Yeah. I, I don't see it getting better anytime soon unless there's uh, a significant change in uh, who's who's calling the shots. Moving forward, in conclusion here, uh, John, what would you say is the takeaway that folks in the audience should get from this relationship? What is maybe something that, as far as notions go, should be dispelled and something that people should truly walk away with? because of just how important Cuba's role is in all of this? Maybe two takeaways. Something that I said in the middle, which is that um, there's an over-reliance on, on raw numbers of Cubans in Venezuela, and that the focus should be not on the number of Cubans, but on the role of those Cubans. So um, I, I think that's number one. If you're specifically 
talking about the relationship between Cuba and Venezuela. I, I think the second takeaway is that these are countries that that were tied together for ideological reasons and you know for for the personal the friendship between their leaders but that now it is a very transactional relationship as you said a quid pro quo relationship and that Venezuela is helping to sustain Cuba economically and Cuba is helping to su- sustain Venezuela politically and i think the third takeaway is one that speaks to to the larger project at, at the Woodrow Wilson Center uh, about Venezuela and its government's ties to foreign governments, which is that Venezuela is a country whose authoritarian government is in part being helped in power by authoritarian allies. Cuba, China, Iran, Russia, Turkey, etc. And that this is a danger in the hemisphere of countries falling to authoritarianism is is that this becomes a a different global axis uh, an axis of democracies and an axis of dictatorships so the way that cuba and, and venezuela are tied together is actually you know quite similar to the way that venezuela is now tied to a number of other countries uh, around the globe and that undoing any one of those relationships might help prospects of redemocratization, but ultimately Venezuela has a lot of allies right now. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And they all they all sort of play from the same handbook, right? When we talk about Iran, Russia, we're, we're not talking about left versus right anymore, right? This is democracy versus authoritarianism. That's exactly right. And um, as the old saying goes, um, you can't provide the right answers if you address the wrong questions. So it's about trying to reframe this in order to recognize the problem for what it truly is. Um, And read, of course, the the report that you and Brian did, because uh, I know that you guys at the Wilson Center have done good job or have done good work on speaking on what's going on in Venezuela. Uh, The working group, I'm very, very excited to see what you guys come up with, because like you said, that is a that is a brain trust of very, very highly qualified intellectuals, academics, you name it. I'm sure that great stuff is going to come out of there. So on your end, if the audience wants to keep up with uh, your work, because you don't just do Venezuela and Cuba, as detailed as your analysis was today, you also, I'm sure, are on top of what's been going on in Peru, in Colombia, in Argentina, in Chile, in Brazil. Um, if uh, folks in the audience want to learn more about that, how can they reach you or look you up? Well, my home address is, no, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> I suppose, uh, I suppose they could follow me on Twitter, uh, at, at J Polga is my, is my Twitter handle. I am often on social media because it's exhausting. Um, but whenever I publish something, I, I will definitely publicize it there and, um, and often, uh, we'll we'll make quips about Latin American politics. Perfect. Yeah, I'm going to provide a link to all of uh, John's social media handles in the show notes, as well as the report that we looked at today. And lastly, from the Venezuela Working Group, if you guys want to catch up or keep up with the members of that group. Like I said, there's 
a lot that I'm looking forward to. This is a major step in the right direction for us to try and figure out uh, putting our, our heads together and see what we can come up with. So John, with that, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Rafael, my pleasure. Best wishes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to the story of Venezuela as much as we enjoyed sharing it. Make sure you subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen to other episodes and follow us on all social media platforms for more engaging content. Don't forget to share the podcast with friends, family, or anyone abroad. Reach out to us with any suggestions for future episodes at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com or just to say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, we'll see you in the next one. Thank you.